Uh, good morning. Thank you very much for coming to this session. Uh, my name is Karen Olness. I'm a pediatrician with a subspecialty in developmental behavioral pediatrics. And I would just like to start this session with a prayer. Dear Father in Heaven, thank you for this opportunity to speak with this group. I ask for the ability to speak clearly and to explain clearly. And I ask that you bless those who listen. In the name of Jesus, amen. I would like to tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I began as a medical missionary in Laos, working with Christian and Missionary Alliance, and later went to um, Kenya, where I worked in a malnutrition program. At that time, I really had no clue about the significance of cognitive impairment. For family reasons, we had to return to the U.S., and I entered academic pediatrics, and that's when I uh, began working in global health in the U.S. I started the global health program at the University of Minnesota and also at Case Western Reserve uh, University. And along the way, I volunteered many times in disasters, um, saw the special needs of children in disasters, and started a training program on management of disasters focused on children and families. I also started an international adoption program. All these things gradually led to my recognition that this issue of cognitive impairment is not recognized as it should be. It's really a silent pandemic. So I'm going to tell you something about that and hope that you can help me come up with some ideas on how to make this problem uh, more uh, meaningful uh, to policymakers. Well, notice the object objective here of considering ways of reducing this problem in your own community, wherever you work, whether it's in the U.S. or overseas. This problem has meaning to global missions because it's not recognized, because it's poorly understood, and yet it impacts many, many aspects of mission programs. And as I talk, perhaps you can think about how it might be impacting some of your programs. And assistance to those who suffer cognitive impairment requires Christian love and compassion. About 2 billion children and adults are affected by the problem of cognitive impairment. That's about a third of the world. This leads to problems in education, employment, economics, leads to poverty, has political implications, reduces the ability of societies to address all other health and social needs. Just give you a quick definition of cognition, a term re referring to mental processes involved in gaining knowledge and comprehension, including thinking, knowing, remembering, judging, and problem solving. These are higher level functions of the brain that encompass language, imagination, perception, and planning. Think about this. In this 21st century, never have so many children around the world had opportunities for health, healthy development and eventual productivity, and never have so many in terms of sheer numbers suffered from physical insults leading to cognitive impairment and subsequent lack of opportunities. By the way, I did upload this talk, and what I uploaded has more than what I'll be able to share with you today, so you can look at it. I also 
uploaded a list of references related to cognitive impairment. I ask you to think about how you could help me. As I said, this problem deserves far more attention than it receives. What can we do to help policymakers understand it? And what can we do to prevent and treat cognitive impairment? Many hazards to early brain development. I'm going to focus almost most of this talk on two of them, malnutrition and prenatal alcohol exposure. Uh, but as you see here, there are many, many causes, and I'll say a little bit about some of the others. Reminding you that the majority of significant brain development occurs in the prenatal period and up until about two years of age. Very crucial period for development of the brain. Look at this, synaptogenesis. How many of you knew that synaptogenesis occurs at the rate of 40,000 new synapses per second in around the time of birth? And it's completed pretty much by age two. But then there's a pruning process that concludes with the final synapse numbers in late adolescence. The brain is not really complete until late adolescence or sometimes the early 20s. For those of you who are medical students, how many of you are medical students here? Great to see you here. This could happen to you. Yanina Geller was a medical student. She accompanied her professor to Barbados to help with the study he was starting on malnourished children. And he died early. She took over the study, and she is still doing it more than 40 years later. This shows you the prevalence of stunted children in the developing countries. The dark areas uh, of the map show you where stunting is more than 40% and, where it's, and this means cognitive impairment. Effects of malnutrition depend on a number of factors, including the type of malnutrition, including whether or not there are micronutrient deficiencies, sometimes uh, protein is okay, but there are significant micronutrient deficiencies. Timing, severity, duration, and environment. You can suffer malnutrition with far less damage to your brain if you suffer it at age five than if you suffer it during the first year of life. And I mentioned the critical period of brain development. Dr. Galler, um, uh, her, uh, her professor had the following selection criteria. Uh, the children who were entered into this study had to have a normal birth weight, a normal APGAR score, which is a, a test of how the baby is uh, breathing and how the heart is functioning at birth, no perinatal complications, and no further malnutrition in childhood or adolescence. I'll just say a word about that later. And then the controls were classmates of the index children. The children in this study suffered malnutrition for only three or four months during the first year of life. They were all identified because they were hospitalized for treatment of their malnutrition, and they were treated, and so the period for most of them was no more than three or four months. And because she was so well-funded, the NIH continued to fund her study to this day. Um, she was able to send a nutrition expert to the home of each of these children once a week until they were age eight, which meant that never again were they malnourished. For those of you who worked in the field, you know what happens. We treat children with malnutrition, and they get better, and then six months later they're malnourished again. But these kids 
were never again malnourished. And she studied them numerous times, as you see here in the research design, and now she is studying the second generation outcomes. She has done um, also rat studies of malnutrition at MIT, and she has found that it takes, once you have a malnourished baby rat, and then that rat goes up to become a mother rat and then a grandmother rat, it takes until the fourth generation of normal nutrition for the rats to have the same uh, behavioral function as those uh, before the period of malnutrition. This is the performance of these kids on the 11-plus exam, which is an exam that's given uh, in the Barbados and you see here that um, those who were malnourished, the red line and the, and the yellow line, um, did not do as well as the children who were without malnutrition, the green line. Uh, I would just say a word, want to, want to emphasize that she did not find huge differences in IQ. The differences are not in IQ. You can have almost normal IQ um, and have had a period of malnutrition, uh, but it's other areas of brain function that are so seriously impacted by early malnutrition. In the classroom, 60% of the previously malnourished children showed striking symptoms, including impaired attention, poor memory, easy distractibility, and poor overall school performance. These were documented again at 18 years, and they were significantly associated with reduced school performance and high school dropout rates and later poor, poor performance and work, uh, inability to keep jobs, um, and many si similar problems, including poverty, which relate to not being able to keep a job. However, there was one person in this cohort who became a pediatrician, and she obviously... We, at least those of us who are pediatricians think that she must have been able to uh, use her cognition fairly well to get through medical school and pediatric training, and she is now helping with the, the follow-up studies. So this is just a reminder of the classroom problems that she observed or they documented in the study, and you see down below there poor executive function, and I'll say something more about that uh, a little later. Uh, this is a very important point. Extensive review of the socioeconomic backgrounds in these children led the experimenters to conclude that environmental factors played only a small role in the delayed development of those children. She and her colleagues are now studying the mental development, as I said, of the children of previously malnourished individuals. Her husband is a cardiologist, and a couple years ago he went to Barbados with her for a follow-up, and he did cardiovascular assessments on all of these um, former malnourished children and the controls and found that the majority of the previously malnourished adults in midlife had cardiovascular disease, which was not true for the controls. And there are a number of possible reasons for that. I won't go into that, but that is something that we had not anticipated. There's more and more uh, research now about this whole issue of later uh, chronic disease related to stress and malnutrition in the early years of life. Um, and she's publishing a number of papers now. This is one of them. Uh, you can, you can uh, look up Dr. Galler and read all of her many papers related to this study, but this is one on early childhood malnutrition predicting depressive symptoms at age 11 to 17. 
Um, when I worked in the Nongkai refugee camp, I saw this child. She was 10 months old. She had severe measles followed by diarrhea, and she lost weight and was malnourished for a period of about three months. At age two, the family was relocated to Boston. These, this was a Lao family. I followed her up, and when she was in second grade, she was having problems with attention, with memory, and with math. Now, that may not have related to her early malnutrition, but none of her siblings had these same problems, and they had not experienced malnutrition. And it's likely that there are many children who have these kind of problems, and it is not remembered that they had a period of malnutrition in the first year or two of life. Dr. Betsy Lozoff has done a lot of research on the problem of iron deficiency, both iron deficiency with and without anemia. And she has demonstrated that these children have evidence of cognitive impairment. More importantly, like Dr. Galler, she has followed these children, found that more than 10 years after treatment for iron deficiency in Costa Rica, they were still demonstrating problems with behavior and development related to um, injury to their brain from the period of iron deficiency. She has also done concurrent animal studies. She, uh, her current conceptual frame and framework for the effects of iron deficiency relate to um, delayed myelination and dendritic arborization and impaired neuron metabolism, particularly in the hippocampus. The hippocampus is extremely important in terms of higher order cognitive function the connection between the hippocampus and the, um, and the frontal cortex, very important, for example, in, in sequencing ability. Sequencing ability relates to math, and there are a lot of demonstration of math problems in, for instance, prematures who have had damage to the hippocampus. Infectious diseases which cause brain injury or are associated with learning disabilities are many, and I'm not going into them in detail, but just... To let you know, when you treat infectious diseases, uh, there may be later effects of which you cannot uh, be aware at the time of treating with uh, antibiotics or however else you treat them. Um, cerebral malaria and cognitive impairment. There have been retrospective studies, and some of you may have followed children who had cerebral malaria. And uh, there is... A recent prospective study by Chandy John from the University of Minnesota, which has documented cognitive impairment in 26% of children for up to two years following an episode of cerebral malaria. And I believe that they are continuing to follow those children. There are a lot of genetic conditions, of, cause, of course, which cause cognitive impairment. I mentioned Fragile X as an example, and I mention it mainly because I think it's typical of many genetic conditions. It's often not recognized, particularly in resource-poor areas. You're overwhelmed with the treatment of malaria and diarrhea and other things and probably unlikely to be as aware that there are children around who have fragile X, which is uh, a, a problem, uh, a real problem, can cause severe mental retardation or uh, less obvious evidence of cognitive impairment. There are other genetic conditions um, which can cause learning impairments. I think most of you are familiar with Down syndrome, of course, uh, Turner syndrome, Rett syndrome, and I'll just um, tell you a little bit more about Rett syndrome later because this is an area in which there's hope that this condition can be reversed. 
hypothyroidism associated with learning disabilities. Uh, in the U.S., of course, we treat this early. We do testing of all infants uh, for thyroid function, and we treat early. Nonetheless, there are studies which demonstrate that there are long-term intellectual deficits despite early high-dose treatment and optimal replacement therapy. Iodine deficiency remains a big problem. Um, this was a WHO statement in 2007. It was five years ago, but I think it is still true that uh, iodine deficiency is a public health problem in more than 40 countries of the world. And now something about fetal alcohol uh, spectrum disorder. And the reason I am emphasizing this is because this is becoming a problem in other countries. It is a problem in the U.S., continues to be, and it is a problem, a big problem in Russia, as many of you uh, may know. And, and it is, um, uh, for example, in Laos, where I think for thousands of years women have not taken alcohol during pregnancy. There is a beer that's been uh, sold in Laos called Lao beer. And now the rumor is uh, among young women that it's a very good thing to drink beer during pregnancy. Um, probably the rumor was started <laughs> by the company. I, I don't know that, but, uh, but it is really dreadful to hear that. There are several diagnostic sy systems for fetal alcohol uh, uh, disorder, and uh, you can look those up, and I'll give you some references uh, for those that they are on. I have uploaded them for you. Um, you may be surprised to know that Fetal alcohol exposure is a leading cause of mental retardation in the U.S. And prenatal alcohol exposure causes more serious neurobehavioral effects than other drugs such as heroin, cocaine, and marijuana. This shows you a, a typical face of a child who had fetal alcohol exposure. Uh, you can see the wide-spaced eyes. Perhaps you can guess that there's a flat filtrum here uh, and... Um, thin lips, but many children do not show such obvious um, facial manifestations uh, because there are different effects of alcohol depending on where in the timing in pregnancy when the child was exposed to it. You can look at the difference between these. Um, I'm going to show you the... Uh, this is um, brain. Uh, this was full-term babies, uh, the one... On your left is a, a normal a brain. The one on your right is a baby who was exposed to alcohol during pregnancy. And this slide gives you an idea about uh, the different manifestations depending on when uh, the child was exposed. You see uh, in the first trimester, that's when you see most of the facial dysmorphologies. Uh, second trimester, disrupted learning and memory cognition, disrupted executive functioning. Uh, third trimester, difficulties with timing ta tasks, lack of coordination, emotional uh, dysfunction, and memory effects. Poor attention is the strongest correlate of prenatal alcohol exposure. Um, and the deficits, severe deficits in executive function include deficits in planning, uh, problems with uh, self-control, uh, fluency and processing, speed, cognitive flexibility, and concept formation. 
Um, there are more psychological problems in people who ha have ha had uh, prenatal alcohol exposure. They themselves are likely to have higher rates of alcohol abuse. And the fact is there are a lot of people who have some aspect of fetal alcohol exposure and it's never really known. You know, they, they never really know that that happened or that was the cause of their problem. In our international clinic, we saw our international adoption clinic, we saw many children uh, like the one I describe here. This was a boy who was adopted from Russia at age 34 months. Uh, we evaluated him two weeks after arrival, again at 3, 6, and 12 months. Um, his general development at the time we first saw him was not bad, 31.5 months at, 30, at 35 actual months of age. Uh, we knew the parental rights of the birth mother had been removed due to alcohol use and neglect, and the possibility of fetal alcohol problems was, ex was discussed with the family at each visit. They didn't come back until he was nine. He was having significant learning disabilities, behavioral problems in school and at home. At that time, uh, we now had the what is called the software for assessing uh, facial features, and this revealed facial features that were consistent with the fetal alcohol exposure. What do you do for these children? Well, uh, in our country, uh, we, do, we can do a lot, but not all children with this problem receive all these services. But just look at all the services that ideally these children should receive. Um, perhaps medication for attention problems, structured environment, uh, executive function strategy training, um, psychological help, social skills groups, connection to community resources for developmental disabilities, occupational therapy, speech therapy, special education. Um, and we know that not all children in our country receive all these services, and we certainly know that they don't receive these services in many of the countries in which we work. Uh, these are resources for intervention. If you're interested, you can look, look these up on, on the web. Um, elevated lead levels associated with decreased intelligence, attentional problems, specific learning disabilities, deficiencies in fine and gross motor development and behavior problems. And, of course, those of us who are pediatricians or family physicians know that we have to um, assess children uh, for the possibility of lead exposure. Learning impairments due to organophosphate pesticides. I just attended a, a webinar in which uh, they were looking at children in California who were exposed to uh, one of the organophosphates and finding uh, enormous deficiencies in cognition in children who early on had high levels in their cord blood uh, of uh, organophosphate pesticides. And these were pesticides that are, were commonly used in homes uh, at that time. Head injuries, of course, can occur early on. They can occur later, but when they occur early on, younger children who sustain head injuries are likely, more likely to have developmental disabilities than older children. Congenital heart defects. Um, those children, for many reasons, may have problems of cognition. You see, for example, a third of children who'd undergone staged palliation for hypoplastic left heart syndrome had mental retardation or learning disabilities. Um, I, 
I made a point of looking at all the abstracts related to the cognitive problems of infants born prematurely uh, at the Pediatric Academic Society meeting in 2011. And uh, there were more than 30 abstracts on this topic documenting various aspects of cognitive function. But half of all premature infants exhibit more subtle attention and learning problems as they grow older. And this, of course, becomes, uh, or the outcome from this, becomes more obvious in middle and high school. Children in humanitarian emergencies. They're at risk for infectious diseases, of course, psychological trauma, malnutrition, and many of these things can lead to cognitive impairment for them, just as the little girl I mentioned to you who had um, suffered measles with uh, diarrhea in the Nongkai refugee camp. Um, this is, here I am here measuring a child who had malnut malnutrition in, um, in Goma. This was after the movement of the Rwandans, and this child was a, uh, a child without parents. Um, this is a photo of colleagues in Thailand who were working with children who lost parents after the tsunami affected southern Thailand. This, these are displaced children we worked with after the Pakistan earthquake. Another photo. Just um, the misery associated with natural or man-made disasters and such a dreadful experience for the children who are there. At the present, at the moment, right now, there are 18 million children in the world displaced because of some sort of a disaster. Uh, we, I went to work uh, in Haiti immediately after the earthquake, and a year later we went to do training, um, particularly on the psycho, psychosocial issues after disasters. What was interesting, um, we had... Um, physicians, nurses, social workers, psychologists taking this training. And they said that they, one of the things they appreciated about the training, it was the first opportunity they had had to share um, among themselves and with us their own personal uh, stressors associated with the disaster because they had been so busy taking care of the children uh, that they really hadn't had time to think of themselves. So they appreciated that opportunity. Uh, there have been many presentations here on uh, children who suffer from uh, being without parents or living on the street. And they, of course, are at risk for all of these problems, including which may lead to cognitive impairment. This was an article uh, published in, in Lancet. A uh, conservative estimate is that more than 200 million African children under five will fail to reach their potential in cognitive development. And uh, these figures are really staggering and they are really frightening. I'd like to emphasize that early childhood development testing it, at this time, we, it may be better in 10 years, but it's really poorly predictive of adult outcomes. And you can see many children who will do relatively well on an IQ test or another test, but that doesn't um, predict how they will be doing with respect to higher order cognitive functions 10 years or 20 years later. So parents, teachers, and pediatricians may have forgotten or never known that the child experienced brain injury in the early years 
at the time when that child later is manifesting some behavior problems or learning problems in school. And I've alluded to the fact that these children have often have secondary behavior problems. And we hear these kind of things, oh, that child's just lazy. I've heard that a lot in uh, resource-poor areas. Or he has behavior problems. Or she could do it if she worked harder. She, they watch too much television or it's the fault of the parents. And they don't realize that the child has learning impairment. All sorts of types of learning problems, and it takes a lot of skilled testing to often document exactly what, what these problems are. Um, I'm just going to focus on one delay in abstract reasoning ability. I just want to ask, um, what is the average age that abstract reasoning ability really comes in? What age? What do you think? What? Seven? Thirteen? It is 16. 16, and it's a lot later than most people think when you see those tall, strapping 15-year-olds who look pretty normal. They may not yet have abstract reasoning ability. <laughs> now, I've mentioned executive function. Executive function is very important very important. It's God's gift to, to those of us who have executive function. Self-regulatory or control functions that organize and direct cognitive, behavioral, and emotional activity, including the ability to select relevant task goals, plan and organize, shift problem-solving strategies, flexibly monitor and evaluate your own behavior. And this is the area that is so damaged often by many of these um, factors that I mentioned to you, such as malnutrition, iron deficiency, infectious diseases. So my question of you is, what can we do to help policymakers understand this problem? What can we do to prevent and treat cognitive impairment? I just want to take a few minutes to ask for some of your comments and then to go on with a few more ideas uh, that we have had or um, a few more comments about some things that might work to treat or prevent cognitive impairment. Yes? Well, the first, the first step is what you're doing right now is that those of us who are involved need to be aware of it. And then Lord's given most of us a holy pulpit somewhere so we can, we can educate our colleagues, educate our I'm going to write down these. these. I, I, I just, I really resonate to what you say. Yes, we need to do that. And I, you know, I give talks on this topic whenever I have the opportunity. Yes. I don't know offhand, but is this material in the books that are out there, like where there is no doctor, uh, where women need a doctor? I don't think so. I don't, I don't think so. Yep, you're right. <laughs> uh, yes? Maybe this can be incorporated to school courses. I mean, emphasize a little bit more because I think this kind of stuff is kind of listed. It's not really talked about, but you know, these are the symptoms of malnutrition. This is side effects. And then even 
Yeah. yeah, you're right, and I think there's not enough recognition of, of what a huge problem it is. You know. Yes. In resource-poor countries, often dietetics and nutrition is not even recognized as an area of study. And I think we need to attempt to get that included. That's a very good point. No. Do you have any... Do you have any connections whereby you could suggest that be? Possibly. Yeah. If any of you do, I would. I think that's a very, very good point. Yeah, you could go to where I'm working and um, and go speak at the university. I'm making an invitation, so I have to talk to you afterwards. Go to the university setting and actually go with people who work with several orphanages there too, and uh, and go into schools too and talk to the directors of these schools. I'll just tell you a a little vignette. Um, About five years ago, I I received a call that the vice president of Uganda, who was visiting Case Western Reserve University, wanted to talk with me. And um, he's a physician, and I had known him before when I worked in Uganda, uh, when he wasn't the vice president of the country. And, and he, this is what he said to me. I want to talk to you because one of my Ugandan friends told me that the reason Western countries are more successful than Africa is because Westerners think three-dimensionally and we only think two-dimensionally. And do you think that's true? And what could I do about it? Well, I said, I said uh, Mr. Vice President, I don't think you think two-dimensionally. Um, but I do think you have many children in your country who have suffered malnutrition and who probably have some learning disabilities. And he was just horrified to hear this and really wanted to do something about it. Uh, but then he lost his position as vice, vice president. So I, as to the best of my knowledge, nothing has happened. Yes? You had to share one website that would be the best compilation of what you were saying? Yes. Anyone? I. I mean, I've just I've just put it on the the website that we have for for those of us who are here. Um, does anyone have any ideas? These these are mine. Yeah. Oh. Uh, well, I have put them, I uploaded them, so they're on the, uh, the Global Missions uh, profile. Yes, they're there. Are on the yes, they're all there. As, and in addition, I, I listed our references. Yes. Right. So I think that also has to be built up within the university settings in those countries to teach people to do special education, teachers, and it all, I think, um, has to go with more awareness as well. You had a comment. 
looks to me like the main thing is just to teach them about the abuse of alcohol in pregnancy. And then the second thing is they need huge bottles of vitamins and minerals. <laughs> right. To prevent, we would, yeah. we would prevent a huge amount of cognitive impairment if we could stop uh, prenatal alcohol exposure and if we could eliminate malnutrition in the first two years of life. And sometimes, you know, generating awareness in a community or region or a nation uh, may take a certain champion, a celebrity or a physician or, some, or a politician or somebody to understand that that's really important. And because this is, you know, we can raise awareness in the schools about some of the reasons why um, some of these kids are failing. But by then, it's really too late because of the, that uh, first two-year window that child has already suffered um, the most impact of that malnutrition. And so getting back before you're realizing that anything is happening, and to be, but to be able to get that information into, um, into uh, <clears throat> offices of doctors or homes of mothers and, and things like that, it, it's, it's, it's quite... You know, it would be quite a campaign, actually. Um, but sometimes um, a champion and for advocacy. I, I agree. I've been yeah. hoping to sure. stumble in, find that person. Yes, you have a question. Um, I'm an Comment. OBGYN, and even take it back, I mean, that two-year window is so important, even educating pregnant mothers and OBGYNs themselves. I'm not aware of this issue. I'm blown away by this. So... The importance of even people that go out to these countries as OBGYNs to educate these pregnant mothers about the importance of alcohol uh, and, you know, making the nutrition of the child. So taking it even a step back. That's that's very good. Yes, back there. Are your um, slides um, copyrighted, or can we use them in presentations? You may have them. Yes. <laughs> I, I think that getting the information out that we can do, that we can help you going to be very helpful because then it comes people teaching other people yes. the same thing. You are all welcome to use them. Yes. Yes. You, you chase community health workers, doulas, midwives, everybody you're working with get this information to them. Yes. Yeah, I think this is really, this is the key element here, even for alcohol addiction. Like I know a mother that tried for what, 20 years to stop drinking. Uh, years to stop drinking, and this was her motive to stop drinking, and it was successful on her. You know, when a woman sees that this is going to affect their children in the future, that's like, sometimes that's the key element to actually making them stop drinking. You know, so this is something that really needs to be put out there in educating pregnant women and even alcohol um, addicts that are women. I heard I heard something on the radio. I, I actually called to complain. Somebody said, "Well, now it, if you take a little alcohol, it's perfectly okay." And I think, "Oh my goodness, you know, we can't." You know, I called the radio manager, and he said, "Well, you have to call back." You know, it, it was it was difficult to get through. Yes. Uh, to expand on maternal health, I think we need to be really holistic. Um, malnutrition, avoiding fourteen-year-old pregnant mothers. Um, also, there's a lot of um, evidence that psychiatric health of women while they're pregnant is really predictive of how kids do later on. Um, so I think that's a big area as well. 
Yes. I'm a psychologist, and following up on what the OB said, I think it's very helpful if we have physicians who understand this, but moving one step back, uh, someone else mentioned the idea of a chapter in a textbook. I think that needs to be for psychologists as well, because we evaluate people, we work with adults, and every once in a while we have something where we're just really stuck and we can't figure out what's at the very bottom of it. And if they have a physician, that could be helpful, or uh, education would be very, very useful to those of us in psychology. Uh, yes, uh, and then I'll get to you. University of Iowa has a, a program, college, or the College of Library Science has a program called WiderNet, W-I-D-E-R-N-E-T. They've um, gotten literally thousands of medical journals, educational journals, to donate okay. their journals, and they put it, they compile it all on a massive hard drive that's available to uh, universities in underdeveloped nations. It's so basically so we, because they wouldn't have access to right, right, materials right. otherwise. So it's pretty much free to them if they get the hard drive. Uh, if so you can arrange for a journal for these articles, call WiderNet and say we would like to donate this material to your hard drive. That's what they're looking for. All right. And it's in all universities all over the it's easy to make a call. I can do that. Now, one more. Okay. I'm a um, retired Navy nurse, and um, I had to come back to Louisville because, um, to take care for disabled family members because um, of alcoholism and mental illness, kind of dual diagnosis type things in my family. And so when my mom died and my dad got um, Alzheimer's, um, I had to come back. And now I work with all their services so they can stay in community-based care, but having been a Navy nurse around the world and seeing the problem, I mean, education is just key. So put it in the nursing textbooks, too, because we're on the front lines. Um, and in the, um, when I first retired, I got to work as a school nurse for years, and I know we had it in our health curriculum to discuss mm -hmm. this, but the pictures, I mean, the things that emotionally connect young people, that their habits have such a impact on the rest of their life. On the rest of it, absolutely. It's happening out there. It's just not, doesn't seem just quite as networked. So the networking type of uh, could you here. Could you draft the chapter? <laughs> <laughs> I could. Uh, why not? Well, yeah, why not? And maybe we could get some, fine, if, if you know a nurse in academics, maybe you could draft it and then and that person could work with you. Uh, I, I'll get your name after. <laughs> okay, so we do need more continuing research in this area. We need for training. I, you know, you've said that, but I recognize that. And I, something I've written about called the World Cognitive Watch, which hasn't happened. I, I did propose that to the Vice President of Uganda. I just wanted to tell you about one thing, this Rett syndrome um, this, I have a colleague who does research on RET, and they have just recently found that they can reverse the RET symptoms in mice with a, this, is, this was an amazing discovery, with ketamine. And, uh, and uh, uh, so this is, you know, very hopeful for RET that this will, um, 
And, and one of the very interesting things, I'll just tell you another anecdote about this, is after this was discovered, he started working with the dentists who, uh, who use uh, ketamine in, um, uh, for the, the dental needs of kids on aut- have autistic spectrum disorders or RETS, and RETS is in that category of, of problems. These kids often need some sort of anesthesia during dental work. And they anecdotally had many, many reports from parents who said, oh, you know, it's interesting. For about a week after he had that experience, he was so much better. And these kids had received ketamine. So um, I'm not sure what will happen with that, but it is something that's interesting. Uh, So this idea of my World Cognitive Watch is to to take a certain area. It could be a county. It could be a country. um, uh, Establish global benchmarks for prevention and treatment. And then get the Ministry of Health involved, the local government agencies involved. You have to get ownership. And that's what I would like to see happen. Um, there are a lot of people in the world like Patrick and Helen Mutono, wonderful um, uh, Ugandans who were in the U.S. living a comfortable life. He had his training in the U.S. They went back to Uganda to his home village, and they started this marvelous program to um, a health program, and they are addressing the significant problem of early malnutrition, and they are living themselves a very simple life, but they are doing really doing marvelous work uh, in the name of Christ. Um, these are we're, we're training pediatric residents in Laos, and as part of their residency, we send them to their home villages, but we also have them speak on the local radio and talk to the mothers in the clinics, and we talk, have them talk a lot about prevention of early malnutrition and infectious diseases. And these are Lao doctors talking to Lao people, and that's the best way. Um, so again, this idea of piloting a cognitive watch, reminding you this pandemic is more serious than all others with all the implications it has for poverty, for education. The solutions, as we've sort of discussed in this group, must involve every family, every community, every country, all institutions, including government, religious, and international. And I end with one of my favorite poems. This was originally, some of you may know, us, uh, from, uh, it was in Spanish by Gabriela Mistral, a poet from Chile. But right now, the child cannot wait. His blood is being made and his senses are being developed. To him we cannot answer tomorrow. His name is today. Thank you very much for your ideas and your attention.